Hey, good morning. One of the things that we love here at Gateway is uh, international connection and partnership. We're part of a movement of churches called Advance, which uh, is involved in strengthening and planting churches around the world. And next week, we have our Advance Global Conference, which is happening in Cape Town. So Richard and Victoria, myself and Grace, and also Matthew Ashton from Fabio Tua, heading out to Cape Town next weekend to be part of that. Uh, next Sunday, I'll be preaching a couple of times at a church in Cape Town, and then uh, Grace and I are involved in hosting the conference, and I'll be speaking at that as well. So uh, it'd be great if you could pray for us while we're there, that God helps us and blesses us. I'm sure he will, and that uh, we'll bring something back which will help strengthen and bless us here in our mission in Bournemouth and Paul as well. I'd also like to introduce some friends of mine. Uh, William and Tulsi, can you give us a wave? Uh, William and Tulsi are over from the Netherlands. Uh, Tulsi is, is, is Dutch, so she's very happy about last night's Eurovision result. <laughs> and uh, William's originally from Ireland, and uh, after I finish this morning, William's just going to get up and help uh, close down what I'm, what I'm going to say. Um, we are one church, we meet in two congregations, so once I've finished speaking, I'm going to go down to our other congregation on Ashley Road and uh, hand over to William, who's just going to help bring some application to what I want to speak about this morning. And what I want to talk about today is faithful disobedience. We are in the book of Daniel. Back in 2011, a report was issued about Christians who had, this is the definition, lost their lives prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. And what that report found was that between the years 2000 and 2010, there were 270 Christian martyrs every 24 hours. That Over the course of that decade, there were about a million Christians whose lives were ended prematurely in situations of witness as a result of human hostility. That is an extraordinary number. And the question, one of the questions to ask out of that is, why are so many people prepared to pay that cost? Now, we are looking at the book of Daniel for a few weeks. We're learning from Daniel. And today, I want us to look at two stories, which might be overambitious, but we'll see how we do. Two stories in the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 3 and Daniel chapter 6. And these are the two most famous stories, probably, in the book of Daniel. It's a story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace, And it's the story of Daniel being thrown into the den of lions. And these are both stories about people who faced death for the sake of their faith. And uh, will hopefully hopefully help us to understand why so many are prepared to do that and actually why that is a good choice to make. So let's set the scene firstly by reading some verses from the beginning of chapter 3 and then from the beginning of chapter 6. We are on page 886 in these Bibles, if you want to follow along. Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 foot high and 9 foot wide, and set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So they all came and assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, 
the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music. You must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. In uh, Daniel chapter 2, we read about Nebuchadnezzar, the king, who has a dream of a statue. It's a dream of a statue which tells him how things are going to play out. It represents different kingdoms, one of which is his. And God, through the dream, tells him that your kingdom's not going to last forever. Rather, the kingdom of God will. But in this chapter, we see that Nebuchadnezzar still hasn't learned his lesson. He's still caught up in his human pride. He still thinks everything is all about him. So he sets up this huge statue, 90 foot tall, and says, everybody needs to worship this. And by everybody worshipping that, they are in effect worshipping him. It's all about his pride, his control, his authority, his power, his kingdom. Turn over to chapter 6. We have a different king. This is later on. This is King Darius. A different story, but it's a parallel story. It says this. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself amongst the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel and his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these chief ministers and satraps went to the group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Different scene, different story, different king, but Darius is like Nebuchadnezzar. It's all about human pride. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be adored. And there's something which is almost comic about these two kings, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, and something which is also quite pitiable about them, <clears throat> that they have this deep need to be worshipped and adored. But human beings are made for worship. And the question we can ask of these two men, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, is why when they already have so much power, so much prestige, so much honor, so much glory, why did they need more of it? And why did they need to enforce it in the way they did when they had so much of it anyway? But this isn't just a story about ancient history. We see it 
all the time in the world today. Think about some of the uh, great dictatorships of the last century. Go to Moscow and you can see Lenin's tomb or go to Tiananmen Square in China and you see a great picture of Chairman Mao. He goes to North Korea and you see, just like Nebuchadnezzar's statue, a vast statue of the beloved leader demanding all the worship and all the honor. But we also see similar things in our Western culture. We see it at the BAFTAs and the Oscars and Sports Personality of the Year. You've got people who already are fated and famous and funded. People who have got huge success and adoration and adulation. Why does it so matter so much to have more? I always find it a bit weird at things like the Oscars. Why does somebody, if you've had a box office smash and everybody knows your face and you've made millions of dollars out of your performance, why is it so important to be awarded a little statue as well? What's the whole deal about? The deal is that we're made for worship. There's actually a need in us to worship. It's in worship that we find our joy and our meaning and our significance. If we don't give worship to something or someone, we ourselves are diminished. The way that you enjoy something is by expressing praise in that thing. The thing which you love, the thing you worship, you draw attention to it and say, look how good it is. And in expressing worship, you actually feel more satisfied. You feel more meaning. You feel more joy yourself. We need to worship. It's what we're made for. We're made for worship. And there's a lot about this which is really positive in terms of how we engage with one another. It's good to honor people. I find things like the BAFTAs and the Oscars and Spotty a bit odd, but it's good to honor people. In a few weeks' time, we'll be having our volunteers party for people who serve in the life of the church here. And at that, we always give people some awards. And it's particularly good to award those who aren't normally famous and fated and funded, who recognize people who just serve without any kind of profile or any kind of demands, but it's good to honor people like that. So that's good. That's a kind of worship when you say well done to somebody for what you've done. This is how actually marriage is meant to operate, that in marriage there's meant to be a kind of worship of husband and wife for one another. The old wedding vows used to say, with my body I thee worship. And that's a really beautiful phrase. It's a sense of, I completely give myself to you. I'm entrusting myself to you. I'm going to delight in you and trust that you're going to delight in me. And husband and wife are meant to worship each other in that kind of way. We, all of us, have a desire to be loved. We have a desire to be seen, to be known. We, we kind of need that sort of worship ourselves for somebody to say to us, you're wonderful, I know you, I love you. We all feel that need in ourselves. That's all good, that's all positive. But it also can get very negative. It gets very negative when our worship becomes a desire to replace God, when we, in effect, want to be God. And that's what happens in these stories. It's what happens with Nebuchadnezzar, it's what happens to Darius, what happens to Chairman Mao and the beloved leader in North Korea, what happens to so many high-profile actresses and actors and sports stars. It can happen with us, where we become narcissists. It becomes all about me and becomes all about our pride. And narcissism and pride can very quickly turn to cruelty. And we've seen that so often in states around the world where one person has wanted to be adored and they've become incredibly cruel. And we see that here in these stories of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. We see a corruption 
of worship that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius want for themselves what should only be God's. But there's something else, something more about the actions of Nebuchadnezzar and Darius here, and that's to do with the power of conformity. These men, they ruled vast empires which contained peoples from many different places who spoke lots of different languages and had lots of different religions. And part of the exercise of empire is to enforce a uniformity and a conformity across the whole empire, across all these different people groups, different languages, different religions, in order that the empire might be secure. And it's like Nebuchadnezzar and Darius are saying to all the peoples in their empires, you can have your own customs, you can have your own gods, but primacy must be to me. You can have that other stuff, but it's got to be secondary. I've got to be top. As long as I'm top, we're okay. But if you put anything else above me, there's going to be trouble. Now, in the UK today, in our context, one of the cultural values that we have is diversity. But often, it's our diversity which actually enforces uniformity and conformity. We live in an era of standardization and homogenization, and that can be very useful. It's very useful that we have standard plug sockets rather than having to wonder what kind of plug will fit. It's very useful that if you buy a new pair of shoes, you can more or less guess that the size you're going for will probably be the right size. It's very useful if you change a light bulb that there's universal light bulb fittings. It's very irritating if you go somewhere else and the plug doesn't work and you're going to a different country and you have to work out and try and remember what kind of plug do they use in that country. Or if your phone runs out of charge and... Everybody else's phone uses a different kind of phone charger. That kind of stuff is just irritating. So there's a reliability and predictability about standardization, which is great. But it also has its downsides. There's no longer any cream on top of the milk. <laughs> Back when I was a kid, that was one of the delights of the morning. Be the first person to get the milk bottle, peel off the foil cap, and there's a couple of inches of cream, and you get that for your cornflakes doesn't exist anymore because milk is all homogenized. You can go and buy gold top, which we sometimes do as a special treat. <laughs> but cream is normally missing from the top of milk, and it's things like all our high streets. We go anywhere in the, t in the country or anywhere in the world, and it's always McDonald's, and it's always Starbucks, and it all looks the same. It's the same stores, the same shops everywhere in the world. It all looks the same. It's all identical. And there's bigger scale problems as well, that we are kind of forced into a conformity of belief about all kinds of things. And it's like our culture says to us, you can believe whatever you want, you can have whatever customs you like, you can have whatever uh, beliefs you want, as long as you bow to this thing, as long as you bow to this. And what the this is changes. In our stories, it was a statue or it was a man himself. It changes according to culture and context, but there's always a this. There's always something which every culture will say, you need to bow to this and put this first. And the story of Daniel is a story about the people of God who are exiles. Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they don't belong in Babylon. They're meant to be in Jerusalem. They've been taken as captives by Nebuchadnezzar from Jerusalem to Babylon. They're living as exile. 
But while they're there, they're seeking to live faithfully as those who are citizens of the kingdom of God, even while they're in exile in Babylon. And so what are they to do in the situations in which they find themselves? What these situations require is faithful disobedience. The question posed by these two stories is this. How should the people of God respond in this kind of situation? How should Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respond to the demand to worship Nebuchadnezzar's statue? How should Daniel respond to the requirement to worship no one but Darius for 30 days? How should they respond? And the answer that's given is this, don't bow down. And there are reasons why you shouldn't bow down. You shouldn't bow down if the thing which is demanding you to worship it is in itself morally wrong. But also you shouldn't give ultimate worship to anything that isn't ultimate. And neither Nebuchadnezzar nor Darius, despite all their power, all their authority, all their might, they weren't ultimate. And for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for Daniel to obey, to conform, would actually have been an, an act of faithlessness. So what are you going to do in this kind of situation? It would have been so easy for them to have fudged it. You can imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they hear this threat, unless you bow down to the statue, you're going to get thrown into the furnace. So easy just to cross your fingers behind your back and bow down and not really mean it. What about Daniel? Don't worship anybody but Darius of 30 days. Well, he could have gone home and he could have shut his windows instead of having them open as he prayed. But they don't do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego don't bow down, and Daniel doesn't stop praying to his God. And they're willing to face the consequences of their faithful disobedience. And then we see the vindictiveness of their opponents. There's no reason why these stories needed to have played out in the way they did, but these men had enemies. Let's pick the story up again in both stories. First, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. And then the story of Daniel. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asked God for help and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. In both stories, what we see is deliberate, sneaky attempts to destroy these men, to destroy Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to destroy Daniel. And you know, sometimes people can be just really mean. And this kind of thing goes on all the time. It starts in the playground with the kid who's ostracized and bullied. Don't be friends with him, don't be friends with her. And then it continues all the way to the boardroom with the backstabbing that goes on as people climb the slippery, greasy pole 
of success. The difference in these two stories is that the motivation is religious. These men hate Daniel, and they hate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They hate them because they are Jews. They hate them because they're exiles. They hate them because they're different. They hate them because of their integrity, and they hate them because of their success, and they want them dead. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... These men manipulate a situation the king has created. The king, in his foolishness and his pride, has put up a statue, and the enemies of the Jews see an opportunity to get at the Jews through this. In the story of Daniel in chapter 6, the enemies of the Jews manipulate the king in order to create a situation. They go to Darius and play on his natural pride and say, hey, great idea, let's get everybody to worship you. He says, yeah, brilliant idea. It's all the way to manipulate in order to get at the Jews. And the result is the same, whether it's manipulating the situation or manipulating the king, the result is death to the Jews. Now, there are some, a couple of object lessons for us in this. first one is just a common sense one, that if you are successful, it's highly likely that others will try to destroy you out of envy. Just what happens. But the second object lesson, especially for those of us who are Christians, is this, that If you are faithful to your God, it's highly likely that opposition will come your way. And it doesn't make any difference how positive a contribution you've made to society if you refuse to bow down to the idols of our culture. There are going to be moments when we're faced with a fiery furnace or a den of lions. There's a Japanese saying that the nail that sticks out will get hammered down. And you see that in this story that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego stood out because of their faith and because of their integrity and because of their success. And their opponents were determined to hammer them down. And we as Christians, we're meant to stand out. And that means that sometimes people want to hammer us down as well. So what are you going to do? It'd be so easy to fudge this. It's so easy to go along with what is wanted of you to say something, well, you don't really mean it. It's easy to go quiet and deny our faith by our silence. It's also actually easy to go looking for trouble in a way which is foolish. And sometimes Christians foolishly do that, and you don't see that here with Daniel or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What they do is they remain respectful. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego respect Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel respects Darius. They understand that they're citizens of the kingdom of God, but they're also called to be model citizens in the place where they live. And the reason that we Christians are called to be model citizens as well is that as we obey those who are in authority, somehow we are obeying Jesus. It's what the Apostle Peter says, 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. The reason we obey those in authority is because somehow we're honoring Jesus as we do that. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel are totally uncompromising when it comes to their worship. Why is that? Why would compromise be such a problem for them? It's because if they compromise at this point, at this point of worship, they will cease to be people of the kingdom of God. They will just become people of Babylon. They will just be homogenized with everybody else. 
And they're determined not to homogenize. And this isn't for the sake of just being different. As you read the story, you see that these men are fully invested in the success of Babylon. They're working in positions of authority and influence, and they're determined to be good news in Babylon's story, but they're even more determined not to lose their identity, which is worshippers of the Lord. They're determined to be faithfully disobedient. You know, it's so easy for us as Christians just to kind of blur with the worlds around us, to go incognito, to end up being no different from everybody else. What is called for, and especially in our days, in many ways things get more challenging for us in our faith, is we need extremophile disciples. Extremophiles are those organisms which live where nothing should live. They're those organisms which live at the bottom of the deep oceans next to volcanic vents where there's no sunlight and it's too toxic and it's too hot, but somehow all these creatures live there and they survive and thrive. And what we see with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they're extremophiles. Even in Babylon, even under huge pressure, they stay faithful. As the water gets hotter, they show more and more courage. And that's the kind of disciples that we need to be too. Now, in both these stories, the test of courage is real. It's not abstract. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into a fiery furnace, and Daniel is thrown into a den of lions. And you can imagine what others might have said at this time. You can imagine what their mums would have said if they were around. What a waste! How foolish! Look, you guys, you're at the pinnacle, you're at the top, you're in the king's court, you've got real authority and influence. Think how much good you can do. Think how much good you can do for God's people. Think how much good you can do for the, for the mission of God because of your position of influence. Just compromise a bit. Just bow down to the statue without really meaning it. Just shut your windows and pray in secret. Don't make it so obvious. Just compromise a bit and don't throw your lives away. But no. Something should not be compromised. There's a line that has to be drawn. And these four men are all going to trust in God because they believe he is the God who rescues. Now, in both these stories, there is miraculous rescue. Somehow, miraculously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not burned up by the furnace. They survive. God rescues them and brings them out. And Daniel is not eaten by the lions. Hallelujah. And the result is good. It's honor for Daniel and for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and praise to God. These are how the two stories end. First, the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar said... When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the furnace, praise be to their God who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you see, Nebuchadnezzar hasn't really quite learned the message of grace still at this point, be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into parts of rubble for no other God can save this in this way. There's still some work that needs to be done in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And then this is how the story of Daniel and Darius ends. After Daniel being rescued from the lions, King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, 
May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. These men have complete confidence that God can rescue, and he does, but their actions are consistent regardless of the outcome. Just go back in the story, see what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say to Nebuchadnezzar. They say to him, if we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand, But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. God is able to rescue, and he will rescue. And sometimes God's rescue is seen in the moment. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel were rescued in the moment, miraculously, incredibly. Sometimes that doesn't happen. 270 Christians losing their life every day for their faith. Doesn't look like God's rescued at that moment. But at that point, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to be thrown into the flames and they have confidence that God can rescue, but they know that He might not, they're still confident that ultimately God will deliver them. All these men know that their eternal rescue was secure. This is what Jesus says about this. As recorded by Matthew, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Don't be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be afraid of Darius. Don't be afraid of the gods of your age. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If you know the Lord, you are secure, no matter how insecure life is. At that moment when those guys were going to be thrown into the furnace, that moment when Daniel was going to be thrown to the lions, life looked very insecure, but because of who their God was, they were eternally secure. But if you don't know the Lord, you're insecure. Even if you look as secure as Nebuchadnezzar and Darius. Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, they looked secure. They had all the power, all the authority, all the might, all the muscle, all the money. And yet, compared with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, compared with Daniel, they were insecure until they saw who really was Lord and King. And so what we need is more faithful disobedience. Don't put your confidence in the idols of this world and don't compromise with those idols, be faithful to the Lord, even if that means costly disobedience. Baptism is a kind of sign of that as we baptize Michael and Jemima in a few minutes' time. It's a sign of that. It's a a sign, it's a public declaration of commitment to God, of belief in him, of trusting that he holds them secure. And uh, declaring to the world, this is where our priority is going to be and this is where our worship is going to be. That's all of us who know Jesus have that kind of confidence, that kind of commitment. 
And for those of you who don't know Jesus, the invitation to you today is to have your eyes open, just as Nebuchadnezzar and Darius did, and to see that the Lord, he's the one who can hold you secure. See that he's the one who rescues. See, he's the one who saves. He's the one who is good. And he is the one who is worth following, whatever the cost. Amen. William, come and share your story. And I'll go down to 502. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Uh, Matt has just asked me to share this story to wind up everything that Matt has so powerfully shared with us this morning. Hands up if you can understand me, first of all. Okay, good, good. Um, yeah, so I, I was radically converted just on the outskirts of Belfast many, many years ago. And the man who led me to Jesus was quite an incredible man. He came and planted a church just on a very difficult housing estate. And in many ways, he was fearless. But I'm going to tell you a story about him that kind of shows you that God gives us what we need at the time. So he had come into our housing estate really to start a children's work and to want to share the gospel with children, and that's exactly what he and his wife did. And very quickly it blossomed into about 100 children. And then what happened out of that was a lot of the parents started to ask questions about Jesus, and so they began to give their lives to Jesus, and so a little church began to form but one of the difficulties Tommy faced was this housing estate was controlled by loyalist paramilitaries. And some of the loyalist paramilitaries began to give their lives to Jesus. And so one Saturday night, a crowd of them came around to Tommy's house and knocked on the door. Tommy answered, and they said, we're here to tell you that if you don't get out of this house within 24 hours, we will burn you out of your house. And Tommy's response immediately was, if you burn me out, God will send another 10 just like me. And if you burn them out, God will send another 100 just like them. And he closed the door. Now, that was a very brave thing to say. And he said when he closed the door, his legs began to shake. Because he realized he had a little daughter sleeping upstairs, and of course he didn't want the petrol bomb coming through the window or something like that. So he and his wife stayed awake all night, just praying, God, would you protect us? Have your hand on us? Would you show favor out of this? The next morning they went to the little church. They had their church service, fully expecting to come back to the house and to see it in flames. Thankfully, it wasn't. And they came in with their little daughter, and they sat down to have lunch, and then a knock came to the door. And Tommy thought, okay, this is it. I think we're going to have to probably pack up our bags and go. And uh, the knock came to the door was from the eldest son of the paramilitary leader of the area. And this is what he said to Tommy. He said, we see that you stand for what you believe in. We see something in you that holds to the truth of what you're speaking. And he said, actually, my father said that because of that, he was out fishing today, and he caught a couple of fish for you, so you can stay in the estate now. And so he took a couple of fish off him, thanked him, closed the door, and God showed him favor. In fact, Tommy went on from there just to see conversion after conversion to have a powerful impact on that housing estate. The eldest son who brought fish, eventually gave his life to Jesus, and he's a real witness in the estate as well. And I suppose just to finish this all up, because many of us hear stories of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stories of Daniel, perhaps even this story of Tommy, and we think, 
Could I have the courage to do that if I was in that circumstance? And for many of us, the reality is we probably wouldn't. But with the help of the power of God's presence, we would. And I think if Tommy was standing here today, he would say, I would have been out there like a shot. Because I had a daughter, I didn't want any damage or harm to come to her. But with the help of God, I was able to stay and do something for his kingdom. I would imagine Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and Daniel would stay the same. They would say, if it wasn't for the help of God, I couldn't have done it. And so the application for us is this. If you're facing something that needs supernatural courage, not just your bravado, not just your ability to take on tough circumstances, but supernatural courage, the encouragement from God's Word is you will have it when you need it. If you're facing difficulty, something that's bigger than you, some challenge that is greater than your ability, God will give you the courage when it's necessary, just like Tommy, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and just like Daniel, and I'd love to pray a blessing on you because I don't know you, but you could be facing things that need the supernatural help of God. So let me just pray for you just before I hand it over to Rich. Father, I ask you, with people facing situations that I don't want to tread lightly on, Father, illnesses that need faith, family circumstances that need courage, young people going through exams that need just a sense of peace going through them, and the ability to stand up for you in a hostile environment. Father, I ask you that you would invest such a confidence in your word and in you as our God that whatever we go through, you're going to give us supernatural ability, strength, and courage to walk through the flames to look into the eyes of the lions, to hear the threats and yet to stand, even though our legs may be shaking, to say, God, I'll stand for you. Father, especially for those who really need that this morning, perhaps even the courage to say, I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a Christian. It needs more courage than I've got. God, would you give that courage? And Father, I pray that this church would be known as a courageous church within this community that people would look and say they stand for what they believe in. They have a courage that's more than natural. In Jesus' name.